This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia. How about us winning a little two out of three against the Pittsburgh Pirates? How about us? Uh, First off, off the bat, Pete Hoffman can't explain it. I can't explain it. We don't know why the last podcast would not post on Apple Podcast. I I can't or is that what it's called? Apple Podcast? Wherever. Yeah, no, it's iTunes. It's like iTunes. I, 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 I iPod. And listen, by the way, it is up there now. I don't know oh, it why is. it took forever to Yeah. I don't know why it took forever to get there. I even made some emails, I made some phone calls and nothing. <laughs> we all understand. Like I I, I mean we, we don't understand, but we do understand. It's nothing that Pete did. It's nothing that I did. It was odd. So if you missed the last edition of Rico Bronia, we apologize if that's where you usually get your pods. But next time, here's what I would always say. Barring something unforeseen, there's always going to be a podcast after a, after a series is over. So for some reason, if it doesn't pop up in iTunes or where you normally get the pod, look elsewhere and you're going to find it. And hopefully we don't run into that issue again. Uh, and hopefully you're getting this podcast. But I saw the issue. A lot of people mentioned to us the issue. Uh, I guess now it's been rectified, but just remember, there'll always be a Rico after a Mets series. In fact, this series that we're about to talk about, we're recording this at about 11 o'clock at night on Wednesday night, and you may be able to hear it in my voice. I was so freaking tired after I got home from work that I passed out, and I said to my wife, I said, honey, please make sure I'm up by 11 o'clock because I got to record a Rico. And she said, honey, but what if you're tired and you look so adorable sleeping? I said, no, 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 no. We got to get him the Rico any way that we can. It's my friend Sessa on the fence. So here we are getting set to record a Rico. And, that's, and can, uh, I, can I add on to that? First of all, uh, I just walked out of my, um, my nice hotel room in the Grand Floridian. I told my <laughs> wife, uh, I have to record a podcast. We just, we just got here, by the way. We were on like a, Supposed to take three hours to get to Florida. We landed at like nine o'clock uh, because freaking weather delay or whatever. But we just got here. I ate quick and I said, okay, I have to record a podcast. Why? Because of the people. Yeah, you. Pete is committed because the first thing I said to Pete is I said, listen, you're at Disney World. You're on vacation. Do you want me just to record it? Like, would you rather not do it? And he said, absolutely not, bro. We got to break down winning two out of three against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Because if we don't do it, <laughs> no one else is going to do it. No, and, and I have to pat you on the back because you nailed this to a T. Five out of five. five yeah, five, I, five five. I somehow, like the broken clock that is right twice a day, completely nailed this homestand. And I appreciate you giving me the credit. And what I'm proud of is not just five and five being correct about, 
but specifically how we were going to get here. Winning two out of three against the Chicago Cubs, losing three out of four to the Atlanta Braves, and though it was shaky at times, winning two out of three against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's weird because I'm happy when the Mets win. I am. I can't deny that. So when they won the opener of this series against Pittsburgh, even when they won the afternoon game, the finale of this series, and DJ Stewart is morphing into Babe Ruth, and Tyler McGill is somehow settling down and getting through five innings, that does, as a Met fan, make me happy. And I know we've talked about this a little bit, and it'll continue to be a discussion through the end of the season, but I also acknowledge that in terms of finishing with a bottom six record or finishing with better chances of winning the lottery, beating the Pittsburgh Pirates is bad for those things. I. I understand that, but when you're sitting there on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, or in this case, a Wednesday afternoon, I don't know about you listening. I want to see them win. Even if Rafael Ortega is wearing Michael Conforto's number, you know, even if Tyler McGill is pitching for a rotation spot in AAA next year, I still want to see them win. It doesn't maybe give me the same joy as it would have given me if this team was in a pennant race, but I am happy when they win games. And here's what happened on this homestand. They took on a good Cub team and won two out of three. They took on a a lousy Pirate team, won two out of three. But when they faced the Atlanta Braves, much like when the Yankees faced the Atlanta Braves, they saw what you want to be. Aaron Boone made that comment, and it absolutely is true. I know you don't know Yankee fan or even a Met fan wants to hear about how good the Braves are and how you want to be the Atlanta Braves, but that's really who you want to be. And before I get into any of these games, and look, we're not going to spend too much time breaking down each game. Tim Britton of The Athletic wrote a column, which I know a lot of people don't have The Athletic, but it was very interesting. It was thought-provoking, and it was about the way the Mets were built this past season and the way they may look to build themselves in the future based on, was this team built the wrong way because of the new rules? And I give a lot of fans of the Rico credit for this because this was certainly a question that was asked even before the season starts. By the way, it's Tim Britton of The Athletic, not Tim Healy. If I said Tim Healy, I apologize. I get they're both very good Met reporters, but I get them confused sometimes because their first name is Tim. And that's very, very tricky. Very, very tricky. So it's actually Tim Britton of The Athletic that wrote the article about the Mets' approach for 2024. But this question was brought up a lot. Pete brought it up. I give you credit to Hoff. A lot of Met fans before this season of, will the new rules not affect the team or will they affect the team? Now, here's my observation before we dive into should this change their approach for 24 and some of the conclusions that Tim, uh, did I say Healy or Britton? I I forgot again. Tim Britton. (laughs) I think it was Tim Britton. You said Tim Burton. Tim Tim Britton and Will Salmon. Those are the athletic writers. I want to get their names right at least. I apologize. Tim, Tim Salmon? The t- <laughs> How about I just call him Tim? Tim wrote a great article. That works. So I think the pitch clock affected and has affected and continues to affect Carlos Carrasco. And, and that was brought up. I'm sure, Pete, that's one of the names you mentioned. I don't think there's any doubt that based on his age, based on his history, and really based on his struggles this year, as I gulp a bottle of water. Hold on one second. Oh, that's so good. I'm eating fries, so don't worry about it. 
<laughs> Gulping water while trying to maintain a conversation was Marco Rubio at the State of the Union a few years ago. I don't know if anyone saw this. It was when Obama was president, so Rubio was doing the um, the response, if you will, and it was a big moment for Marco Rubio. Hey, can he be someone like a future presidential candidate? As we learned, the answer was no. He was trying to talk, but he was really thirsty. So he leans over awkwardly while pausing to sip his water. And I remember everybody's take was, just tell us you're thirsty. So that was my approach. I'm very parched right now. So when I want to take a sip of water, I'm going to announce it. I'm going to say, hey, guys, give me two seconds about the sip water. About to do it right now. Here we go. Can I ask you a serious question? Is there a way to spin this into a Nets thing, too? Because you just went, you know, politics and governmental (laughs) stuff. It's usually a Nets or, you know, government history. (laughs) That's coming. Just be patient. We're not there yet. Um, I think Carrasco is affected by the pitch clock. I do. I don't think it affected Verlander or Scherzer. I think that's too easy sometimes. They're veteran guys. They're older guys. And when you have older guys on your team, and I guess Carrasco could fit in this too, you never know when you're just going to start to age. You never know when you're just not going to be as effective as you were before. Now, in Scherzer's case, he's been great in Texas, which is obnoxious, but he has been in the few starts that he's made. But I don't look at Max's failures to blow le- blowing leads this season and his averageness that he pitched to as being affected by the pitch clock. And I think Max is a pro. Maybe I'm giving him, to him too much credit. I don't think that negatively affected him. I don't think it affected Verlander. I think the disengagements may have affected a guy like Adam Ottavino. Um, But Adam Ottavino hasn't had like this horrendous season. He's had an up and down season. That's how, if I'm being honest about how Adam Ottavino's pitched this season, and I'm not surprised by it. In fact, I think we talked about this during the offseason. You kind of expected, well, there's no way he's matching what he did last year. Kind of reminds me of Aaron Loop from a few years ago when the Mets didn't re-sign him. Loop had this amazing year, and it just never felt realistic that he was going to repeat that. It's very difficult for relievers to do that. So has it affected Adam Ottavino? I think it has, but it's not as if he can't pitch at the major league level and he's been atrocious this season. Yeah, but the, the the disagreement on that is if a guy gets on first base, if he loses a guy, walks a guy, guy gets a single, guy a guy on first base turns into a guy on second base. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a problem. No, a hundred percent. I'm just saying it hasn't. Like Carlos Carrasco is not a major league pitcher. And the Mets literally only run him out every five days. We saw this in the opener of this series when Buck was smartly getting him out after three innings, which he's done a lot recently. He's not a major league pitcher. You know, and it's taken me a while to kind of admit that, but here we are. He's not. You know, when a guy can't get through five innings or four innings, or in this case, three innings, and it's not really competitive, he's been so beaten up, he can't pitch every five days. Adam Adovino is still a serviceable major league reliever. So, yeah, I'm not denying that there are times where you get a guy on base, you're just walking a second against him. It, it hasn't killed him. It hasn't. You know, eliminated him from being a major leaguer. But I do agree. I think the disengagements affected him. This is not based on analytics, obviously. This is going to be based on my eye test. One of the other theories they pointed out was athletically, defensively in the infield. That while Lindor has showed off his athleticism and his range because of the lack of the shift, that it may have negatively affected Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonso. So a couple of things about that. 
I'm watching every game. And I'm not saying this as a fanboy or as someone trying to rationalize it. I'm not. I don't see how Pete Alonso has been negatively affected by the shift. I, I don't I don't see that. I think Pete has continued to do what he has done every single year, and that has gotten a little bit better defensively. That doesn't mean I think he's Rico Bronia in his prime. I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that. But is he a better first baseman today than he was a year ago than when he was a year before that? Absolutely. No question in my mind. Jeff McNeil, I think what's tough for Jeff McNeil is that he's a good defensive second baseman. I don't think he's great. I think he's good. And he also gets shifted all over the place. I don't mean shifted by the shift. I mean playing right field, playing left field. And I love that about Jeff. I think that's a value to Jeff McNeil, that no matter who's on your roster or who's injured, you can find a way to play him because he can play a serviceable right, a serviceable left, a serviceable second base. I don't think it's gone that backwards that far defensively at second base where I would say, boy, that lack of athleticism, that's killing him. You know, usually he's got a guy playing short right field. Well, obviously, when the shift was involved and you had a guy in short right field against a left-handed slugger, Jeff McNeil had less ground to cover. Uh, there's no question about that. But I don't see it, you know, watching him every day, how it's so negatively affected the way he's played second base. So I don't know if I completely buy that theory that defensively they've gone backwards because of the shift. And I admit I'm doing this with an eye test, not with defensive run save or any kind of metric. I'm watching them every day and I'm trying not to be biased here, Pete. I don't see how that has really affected them. And now it's weird because I would, I kind of think that the shift has hurt McNeil in the opposite way, not defensively different. Yes. Hitting I yes. think it's hurting. And and I just I have a question for you and I don't want to pivot, but someone asked me the stupidest question in the world I want to punch him in the face. His name is Paul Rosenberg. It was <laughs> Anthony Gallo. One of the two. They asked me a dumb question. They said, Who was a better first baseman in their career as a Met? Carlos Delgado or Pete Alonso? And I think it's no question it's Pete Alonso. Defensively? Yeah. I think Pete Alonso's gotten better, yeah. I think it's Pete. And again, that doesn't mean I think Pete has gotten to that area that he probably wants to be, which is Paul Goldschmidt. And he has said that. I remember I interviewed him right before his major league debut down in spring training in 2019. And he said at the time, and I think he's repeated it a few times, he wants to be Paul Goldschmidt. And he wants to be Paul Goldschmidt, not just because he's a right-handed slugger, but because he viewed him as this excellent, excellent defensive first baseman. But he's better than Delgado. Delgado was below average defensively at first base. Yeah, and by the time he was here, he really kind of died out the last couple of seasons. I mean, it was awful. Well, he got he got the Mets got Delgado at the end of his career, so it was probably the point of his career where ideally he's a DH every single day anyway. And then yeah, he started to slow down offensively uh, after he hit those the, the eight RBI game, the ten RBI game, whatever it was at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, he threw away his book after that. Yeah, he threw away his five rats, right? But I don't think he was ever good defensively. You know, maybe earlier in his career in Toronto, but certainly not with the Mets. He wasn't much defensively. Stolen base-wise, yes, I agree. The Mets need to be more athletic. No, no doubt about that. And I think we've seen in the trades that they've made, they're attempting to do that. They're attempting to be a more athletic team. 
It's funny when you look at the stolen base numbers from this team this year, and I'll pull them up just so we have it in front of us so we can actually get the exact numbers. Starling Marte has probably done far more in stealing bases than any of us could have expected coming into this season. Because I think I remember us talking about it. We we looked at him and said, well, he is older. He's 34 years old. Is he really going to come out and steal 40 bases? He has stolen 24 bases, which is a huge number considering he's only played 86 games. And I don't know how many more he's going to play when he comes back. So as much as Marte was affected this season, offensively, batting average way down, OPS way down, only hit five home runs, only had 13 extra base hits the entire season. We could pick apart his offense. The fact he came out and stole 24 bases and is still to this point, despite not playing anymore, their stolen base leader is amazing. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. But here's the stolen base issue the Mets have. And this is something, of course, they need to take advantage of. And I think that I agree with the thesis on trying to be more younger and athletic and take advantage of that new rule. The team leader in stolen bases is Starling Marte, 24. We all acknowledge. Definitely had a better year stealing bases than we would have thought. And that number is probably higher if he's actually hitting and feeling healthy. Francisco Lindor has put up 20 stolen bases this season. Remember, a year ago, Francisco Lindor stole 16 bases. So he's at 20, probably ends up at about 25, 26. So it's trending up, but it wasn't like this explosion from a year ago. It's not like Lindor is stealing 40 bases. Do you know who's third in stolen bases on the New York Mets, if you had to guess, Pete? Oh, dude, if it's Tim LaCash, I'll be furious. <laughs> he's not that far off. <laughs> oh, no. I give you Alonso? The guy's not on the team. The guy's not here anymore. The answer oh, Tommy is Fam. Tommy Pham has 11. Gone. You know who's after Tommy Pham? 
I give no. you another hint. Guy's not on the team. <laughs> Canna? Bart Canna. Bart Canna with seven. Ugh. Then you've got Jeff McNeil with five, Pete Alonso with four, Tim LaCastro with four, Rafael Ortega with three, Brandon Nimmo with three. In this era, and it's a brand new era, you got to steal more bases. You got to steal more bases. The Nimmo thing is amazing to me. And we're going to do a deep dive on Nimmo probably at some point during the offseason on what the hell happened this year. Because Brandon Nemo has had such a weird season. His power numbers are up. We saw it again this week in another home run. He's got 17 home runs, which is a career high. And 800 OPS is certainly not bad. It's one of the best OPSs on the team. But he's not that same Brandon Nemo. Like, he has not been that on-base machine that is Brandon Nemo. I'm not even going to complain about the stolen bases with him because you can't change what isn't there. And for whatever reason, Brandon Nimmo throughout his major league career has never been an aggressive stolen base guy. I mean, he's only attempted five steals this year. He's three for five. And this isn't an era now in which the new rules are recommending you try to steal bases. And it's not coming from Brandon Nimmo. So I'm not going to tell you that that needs to change. I think you need to add more personnel that's going to change that. But But hold on a second. If you're talking about a leadoff hitter, yeah, he might get on base. When this year we talked about how he hasn't got on base much. But you can't go station to station anymore. You need to be able to be aggressive. This The, the, the type of baseball that's being played now is you get on first base, you go to second base. You find a way to steal a base. And that you put yourself in a better position to score runs. And if you can't do that with your leadoff hitter, then you should not be the leadoff hitter. Then who should be the leadoff hitter on the New York Mets in 2024? Francisco Lindor or Starler Marte? Someone that steals bases. So the Lindor option is interesting. Starling Marte doesn't get on base enough. You know, if you're telling me Starling Marte is going to come back next year and he's going to hit 310, which is going to bring his on base percentage up to like 370, 380, fine. Okay. That's great. Where I would disagree with you is that while ideally I'd like Ricky Henderson, Ricky Henderson did both. Ricky Henderson got on base and yes, he was a stolen base threat. If you gave me the choice right now, even in this new world, between a guy who's a stolen base machine but doesn't get on base enough versus a guy that gets on base a lot, I'm taking the guy that gets on base a lot. Because at the end of the day, if you're not on base, you can't steal second. It's not a cliche. It's just a dumb fact. You know, It's one of those, yeah, no kidding. No shit, Sherlock. Well, yeah. So I think if, if, you, if this roster is set up differently, and you want to argue, hey, Brandon Nemo shouldn't lead off, you're right. But I don't think on this roster right now, there's a guy that could fit both, which is giving you what you want, a guy that can steal bases, and then giving what giving me or really a lot of other people what we want, which is a guy that can get on base. Now, there will be more athleticism on this team naturally. We are all frustrated that Ronnie Mauricio is not here. Ronnie Mauricio, just to give you the numbers on him, has stolen Let's see, 19 bases this season. So it's not an overwhelming number. You know, it's not 50, but 19 is a good number. It, it certainly adds to what they don't have right now. Obviously, when you look at what they got back in the trade for Verlander, in the trade for Scherzer, you got two guys that you got back that certainly add to that athleticism. Gilbert and Acuna can steal bases. 
I don't know if either guy is really somebody we can write in pen for 2024. In fact, I'd lean no. I'd lean towards that. Maybe we see them late in the season, but probably 2025. So I guess it leads to this question. Where, if they're not going to spend big on position players, are they going to change this issue we're talking about? Is this not something that they're going to change next year? It's more, yeah, they're building their farm system towards this. And eventually these guys will be here. Eventually you'll see Acuna and Jet Williams and Ronnie Mauricio. I would pencil in more towards next year because if he's a triple A next year, I mean, we're just all tossing our arms up. But I, I do agree with the part in terms of building this team, and clearly the Mets have based on the young players are going after, that you just want to take advantage more of those rules and the athleticism uh, that you can bring to your roster. I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I think that's got to be the approach, and that's the only thing is you're right. If they're not going to – if they're sticking within, I don't know who they have that can do that. Then that builds the question of did they make a poor choice in extending or signing Nimmo, extending McNeil, those type of guys? No, I. so I don't think they made a mistake in extending Brandon Nimmo because not every player needs to fit what we're talking about. And I also just, while ideally you want a leadoff hitter that can steal a lot of bases, I don't think it's a must. I don't think it's a necessity. So I don't think they made a mistake at all in extending Brandon Nemo. I think clearly Jeff McNeil is the guy you're going to explore moving more than anybody else. My hope is McNeil performs well enough over the final month and a half of the year that he kind of fixes his trade value because he hasn't had a great season. And that teams are not going to look at him too afraid of what he is. And look, Brandon Nimmo, give him credit for the power. You know, he did this in game one of this series when he hit the home run in the sixth inning. He's hit home runs. And he's also adjusted. I give him a little bit of credit for this. He's adjusted well to going back to left field. He had not played a lot of left field over the last few years. And because of this, I guess it's a groin issue that he's been suffering from. And he wants to play. And Buck wants him out there. The compromise has been, we're going to try to take the strain off of that injury, and we're going to move you to left field. And I think he's played a decent left field. So I don't have regret over keeping Brandon Nimmo. It's funny, and we'll do a lot of this during the, uh, during the offseason. What do you really regret from the way this team was built? And, and that's not necessarily a defense of Billy Epler, though it sounds like one. But I'm always, I always try to be fair when we talk about these GMs and managers. There's going to be a lot of stuff we rip. Colin Holderman for Daniel Vogelback is a rip. That was a reminder this week. Like, obviously, that was an atrocious trade. Not calling up Ronnie Mauricio. Like, I don't feel like I have to go through all the things Billy Epler's effed up before I actually sort of defend him. But maybe I do. But when you look at the moves this offseason, there aren't a lot that you point to and say, how the hell did you do this? (laughs) There aren't. I think I think we were all pretty much in on building around the two veterans. We all certainly were in that when they lost to Grom, even though I disagreed with that, but clearly I was wrong, that they pivot to Justin Verlander. I think one of the things I know you pointed, I, I did not go crazy about was go get another bat. And if they added J.D. Martinez, yes, that would have been a big help. I was more on they should add another reliever. And yeah, it would have helped. 
But I don't know if it would have avoided this entire mess. How about Daniel Vogel back in game one of this series? Go back to game one of this series. That was the game where Carlos Carrasco pitched three innings, and he threw 88 pitches, and he allowed two runs. And Buck Showalter said, you know what I should do? I should get him out of the game with a three-to-one lead, or a three-to-two lead, I think it was. But whatever it was at that point, I got to get him out. Because... He just throws way too many pitches. I think at the time we were, I think it was two to one or two to two, if I'm not mistaken, when he got him out of the game. Or it was three to two. That's what it was. We were up three to two. Carrasco pitched three innings, allowed the two runs. His pitch count was 88. And Buck Showalter said, you know what? This isn't working. And I, I kind of appreciate that he's done that, even though he goes to reliever number one that 98% of us had never heard of until he added on the roster, Tyson Miller. And we are getting a lot of that over the last few days. It's either I've never heard of that guy or he's on the roster. The Jose Budo one, definitely. Cause we've heard of Jose Budo. We've seen him pitch, but when Jose Budo comes into the game the other night, there has to be a collective. He's on the roster. Sam Coonrod activated from the injured list comes in, by the way, looks pretty good out of the bullpen. Not too bad. Your reaction has to be he's on the roster, but the opener of this series saw Carlos Carrasco somehow get his way through three innings. The Met bullpen do, you know, shockingly an amazing job with Carrasco out Tyson Miller, two scoreless innings, Sam Coonrod, a scoreless inning. Phil Bickford, a scoreless inning. Trevor Gott, a scoreless inning. Adam Adovino, a scoreless inning. Let's not be confused, though, by all those scoreless innings. If you want to view this as pseudo-spring training for 2024, there is not one guy in that bullpen that impressed me based on all those scoreless innings. Granted, Adovino will be on the roster. Trevor Gott will probably be on the roster. I'm not sure about Phil Bickford. Phil Bickford's getting a clear audition right now. I'm not positive he's on the roster. I don't know if we're going to see that. But Daniel Vogelback hits a home run in the second inning of this game. And at that point, that gave the Mets a 2-1 to lead. Am I not the only person that gets disgusted even now when Vogelback hits home runs? Like, he hits the home run. I'm happy. The Mets are up 2-1. to one. I don't blame him. He's, uh, he's trying to do something. He does something. I don't think he flipped the switch now that the season's over. But when Vogelback hits home runs, no fault of his own, I just get disgusted when I see it happen. Yeah, I get that with a lot of these guys, like DJ Stewart, too. It's, it's, maybe it's a lot more with Vogelback, but DJ Stewart, I'm like, why is this guy on the roster? And all of a sudden, he hits a home run. It's like, oh, well, there you go. That's why. It's like, nobody needs this right now. You see all these auditions with the pitching staff, with the bullpens. I want to see auditions from these young kids to get called. Like, I, I want to see Baby back soon. I want to see what Vientos has. I want to see what Mauricio has. And then we see Vogel back, who's done nothing all season long. And he, you know, had that big home run against the, uh, the Braves of the day, too, when they were down 13 to three. I mean, it's just, just like, it's, there's no reason. I can't believe he's made this. He's going to make it to the final day of the season. You, it's amazing. You know what's funny? My frustration for it is very different than what you just said. What you just said, by the way, completely fine. I'm not even disagreeing with you. But my frustration is you couldn't have done this three weeks ago. You couldn't have done this in all the big spots you were given a chance to in the first few months of the season when Vogelback was being forced on our throats. Again, I'm not blaming him for hitting a home run the other day. He's trying to do something productive. 
he did it. Good for him. But think about all the opportunities Daniel Vogelback had earlier in this season in big spots with this team where he came up small. And that's where my frustration was. But they win the opener of this series 7-2. to David Peterson pitches game two of this series. And this kind of performance is why it's going to be very difficult, no matter what David does the rest of the way, to even give him a thought of being in the rotation next year. So Peterson is finally allowed to throw a bunch of pitches. He threw a lot of pitches in this game. He walks six guys in three and two-thirds innings. He is putting guys on base every single inning. I mean, it really is infuriating to watch. Shockingly, the only run he gives up is that leadoff home run in the second inning to Peguero. Even putting the leadoff man on in the first, you know, even two on, two out in the first, he gets out of it. Even when he walks the first two guys in the third inning and the bases are loaded with one out in the third inning, he gets out of it. And I give him credit for that, that he's getting out of these jams. But six walks in three and two-thirds innings, it's he wasn't for the first time. Because you go back to the Baltimore game, you go back to his start after that. The frustration was we never got to see David Peterson finish a performance. That's what I said to you last time on the Rico. Like, he was all right. I, I don't even know how to judge it. But they took him out too quick. He threw enough pitches in this game where I can't look at three and two-thirds innings and say, well, it's incomplete. They didn't give him a full shot. They gave him a full shot. He put nine guys on base in three and two-thirds innings. Nine guys. That's that's just too many. He threw a million pitches. Like I know he didn't implode and pull a Severino and give up five or six runs, but it was incredibly frustrating, and it's a reminder of why all these years now in his major league career, you can't trust David Peterson. You can't do it. I think he threw ninety one he threw ninety one pitches. I think he threw forty five balls. Yeah. Well, I mean, he walked six guys. <laughs> which is which is not easy to do. Not everybody could be Charlie Morton against the Mets and walk a bunch of guys, yet still manage to get through six innings or whatever he was able to do. And then the other thing about this game that was very, very difficult to cope with was how they lost the game. This, in a lot of ways, was a very typical, frustrating Met loss. You get the home run by Nimmo to start the game, like we mentioned. He's been hitting a lot of them. Peterson fights his way through all of these innings. He's fighting his way through the first and the second and the third. He finally gets pulled in the fourth inning. And Jose Budo, for a while, does a really good job. He looked really, really good. And then trouble erupts in the seventh inning of this game. And Grant Hartwig comes in, and he can't throw a goddamn strike. And a game that's tight, a 1-1 game, turns into just this unmitigated disaster where you've got bases loaded walk, bases loaded walk, passed ball, which is infuriating, and Alvarez has had a lot of those. He has. Defensively, there are things about his defense that's been really, really good. His pitch framing, the way he takes control, the way with one second on the pitch clock, he sprints out there to the mound. But he's had way too many pass balls. And he has not thrown guys out at second base. Like, seriously, it, I struggle to remember the amount of individual times Francisco Alvarez has thrown a guy out at second. Not all his fault. I admit that. We talked earlier about Adovino. But he's got to get a little bit better defensively. But this game was just, I mean, 
ugly as hell. And then Jason DeLay just breaks the game open with the double. And it was all Grant Hartwig, who's another guy. Just Grant Hartwig has had his moments. He has moments of, oh, maybe we got something. Maybe we got something. And then he gets slapped in the face that we don't have something. That one other thing the Mets need to develop in this farm system. And you could tell me about MLB Pipeline and all the rankings and all the guys they got back for Verlander and Scherzer. They just don't have a lot of young impact arms. They don't have young arms they can stick in this bullpen that throw 99 miles an hour that are raw as hell that you can say, hey, maybe this guy will develop into something. Because trust me, Grant Hardwick ain't that guy. Well, let me ask you a question, because is that a strategy they've had that they just gone? Because besides Edwin Diaz, I mean, you look at Robertson's not throwing 100 miles per hour. Adovino, not even close. Like It's all like, you know, they're pitchers. They could pitch, but they're not flamethrowers. We have zero. We, you look up and down this, this bullpen, nobody besides Edwin Diaz. It, it, to me, it's more about the young arms, the young, raw arms. I mean, relievers, you kind of know what you're getting when you sign them. You know what David Robertson is. You know what Brooks Raley is. And it's not a knock on those guys. It's that there are a lot of organizations who will call off, not that they'll be effective, but young, just horses that are raw and have a lot of potential. And the Met guys that are called up, no offense, but you look at them and say, yeah, I don't, I don't even see how that's going to happen. Like Jordan Walker and Grant Hartwig, guys like that. So I, I watch every game, not only hoping that they win, but viewing the auditions for 2024. And there's not one guy in this bullpen, besides the obvious, the veterans, the guys who are under contract, the guys like Brooks Raley, Adam Adovino, who's probably going to opt in to this final year of his deal, Trevor Gott probably too. There are not a lot of young guys that you look at and say, ooh, there's an audition for next year, and that looked pretty good. They did major, uh, stage a little bit of a comeback in this game. You know, DJ Stewart hit a home run. Jonathan Aruz hit another home run. But just a very... Just an ugly loss. Bottom line. It was, just a, it was just an ugly, ugly loss. The finale of this series was, and again, as I always admit, tough to watch because I'm on the air doing the afternoon show. So it's very difficult to be super focused on it. Tyler McGill sort of did what David Peterson did, except he was able to get through five innings. And what I mean by that is he put a ton of guys on base, which is what Tyler McGill does. Two on in the first gets out of it. First two guys get on in the second, he gets out of it. He gives up the two runs in the third inning, but then puts another guy on base, gets out of it. Puts a couple of guys on base in the uh, fifth inning and then got out of it with some defensive help. So he put a million guys on base, but end of the day, five innings, two runs. And like I said earlier this season when that would happen, I don't care how you get there. From Tyler McGill, I'll take five innings, two runs. But here's the problem with all this. Five innings, two runs was fine. The Mets went out and scored eight runs. They won the game. Omar Narvaez had a double. DJ Stewart had a couple of home runs. Pete Alonzo late hit a home run. That's all great. It's all fine. There was nothing about the McGill start that made you change your view on what he is. And so for this day, it was fine. McGill and Peterson, who are the auditioners, if you will, for next year, they have not moved the needle at all. There's nothing about this performance, despite, hey, five innings, two runs. I still think of nine guys being on base. And I still think of, yeah, this is what we basically saw in April. This is the best of Tyler McGill. And unfortunately, that's not good enough. So we're watching McGill and Peterson every five days. 
And I think we're all coming to the same conclusion, which is, yeah, I don't see it. <laughs> yeah, right Right now the 2024 uh, roster pitching staff is uh, Kodai Senga and Quintana. That's it. Yeah, that has not changed. Now, they, they have kids in the minor leagues that you're thinking about, like Christian Scott, like Mike Vassell, like Blade Tidwell, but I'm not sure if any of those guys should be counted on to be in the rotation next year. So as this series rolls on or as this season rolls on, I don't think any of the auditions have changed our view on things. A couple of things, though, to touch on. Number one, Kodai Senga. I don't think there's any doubt. It was brought up to Buck a few days ago. We're being smart here. Kodai Senga's innings should be curtailed over the final month and a half of the season. This team is going nowhere. They're not battling in a pennant race. I think what I would do to curtail his innings is I get Lucchese up here. I'd say Vassal, but I don't. I just don't think he's ready. And I don't think the Mets want to rush him. So, fine. I get Lucchese up here, who I have to check on. I'm not sure how he's done over his last few starts. Not that it matters. Now, think about it. Did it matter when they called David Peterson up? It doesn't freaking matter. But I think I would just go six-man. I think that's the easy solution to it because pulling him out of the rotation, eh. I think right now there's nobody in this rotation that needs to pitch every five days. So right now you're in a stretch of games where the Mets aren't taking a lot of off days. They got a four-game series coming up with St. Louis. Just insert Lucchese and bring Senga's innings down in that regard. Maybe don't push him quite as much. Uh, He is the one guy in the rotation, though, I look forward to seeing pitch. And he features the coolest giveaway of 2023. A lot was made this week of the Edwin Diaz trumpet bobblehead but my family is very excited for next friday next friday at city field mets angels do you know what this is pete do you know about the senga giveaway uh i i don't i think someone mentioned it but i don't i don't really think i know is it something to do with the ghost fork thing it does man kodai senga glow in the dark ghost fork ball yeah i showed my oldest son a picture of it and he saw the autograph the signature and he's like did Kodai Senga autograph every ball? I was like, nah, it's a replica. Still cool, though. Still very, very cool. So I, I, I agree that Senga's inning should be somewhat curtailed. I would just do it six-man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's the other debate, and I'm not sure Pete and I are going to debate it. I'll give you my thought. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. In fact, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to let you set the tone on this, and that is the reemergence of Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz threw off a mound on Wednesday afternoon. He is clearly on the fast track and could potentially come back. Do you want him to come back? 
Are you in no. favor of him coming back? No, no. He, I appreciate his efforts. I, I know he wants to come back with his team, but there is no reason for him to come back in September at all. It's a waste of time. He showed up the other day. He, he, he signed some autographs. He did his bobblehead. That's good enough. 2024, we'll hold off to them. I will give you a reason why he could or should come back. I'll bring you back to 2014 when Matt Harvey was coming back from Tommy John surgery. And Matt Harvey really wanted to come back. The Mets were not in a pennant race. The Mets were eyeing 2015. And I thought at the time, you can't think about the magnitude of the games. You can't think about the lack of a pennant race. You have to think about, does this benefit the athlete? There's Matt Harvey missing an entire year to Tommy John surgery, which is a a big deal. As much as we minimize Tommy John surgery, it's a big deal. Does it mean something significant for Matt Harvey to be on a mound in September in 2014 for his own confidence going into 2015? And I always thought, because Joe and I would argue this at the time, because Joe had the same view you have about Diaz, which is what's the point? Because you think of it, maybe rightfully so, in terms of this season. It doesn't matter. Why would you pitch him? Edwin Diaz had a devastating injury. Devastating. I don't know how much mental kind of comeback you have to battle through when you're recovering from an injury like this. So instead of having an entire offseason to stew about, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to be on a major league mound? Will my leg be able to hold up? If he's physically ready and the doctors are saying he's fine, like he's he's okay to come back, like you were okay with him coming back if the Mets were in a pennant race. So physically, he's okay. Then I don't see the harm in it. And I think it could benefit the player a lot more than we realize. Edwin Diaz coming back is not for me. It's not for you. It's not for a cheap pop at City Field in late September. I do not believe that this incarnation of the Mets would ever bring Edwin Diaz back for a cheap attendance pop. That's not who they are. They wrote a letter admitting they're giving up. I know that people are still pissed about it, but I respect, just like when Dolan did it, I respected it. Now, some teams can't do that. Some, the Wilpons would never write a letter admitting, hey, sorry, things sucked. We're going to change things. They admitted in a letter, uh, you got no reason to watch this team this year. I don't think that team is going to pressure a pitcher to come back for some cheap pop. I don't. You want to call me naive? Fine. Maybe I'm naive. So if it's not about that and it's just literally doctors say he's okay, Diaz wants to just prove to himself he can be out there, I'm all for it. I don't think it's a negative at all. So I think what we need to do is not just think about, what's the point? The season's over. It's not necessarily about us. Not necessarily about the team's record. I think it's about the athlete going out there and proving to themselves, hey, I can do this. I can physically come back. And the Mets are going to need him to physically come back because next year, how important is Edwin Diaz? He's pretty damn important. So I don't know if he's going to come back, Pete, but I'm good with it if he's physically ready. Why the hell not? Yeah, no, I, and I get that. I understand that, that for the player himself. But here's the thing, too. Like, sometimes the team has to step in and think about what's best for the team. Look at freaking Anthony Rizzo over there. For the two months where he had a concussion, they couldn't figure it out. 
And maybe Anthony Rizzo was trying to play a little bit hard-nosed baseball because he knew that without Aaron Judge, somebody had to step up on this team and he couldn't be the one to complain because he's you know, he wanted to be the leader of the team, whatever the case is. Edwin Diaz, if he if the doctors say it's okay, the Mets still have to think of it as a whole of like do we need you to go out there and risk getting hurt in a in the last month of the season, rush him back? Even if the doctor says, okay, you just never know. Just but save him for next year. You, you always have a risk of injury, though. No matter what you do, there's a risk of injury. So are you saying just in general there's a risk of injury or there's more of a risk of injury because of the injury he's coming back from? I think it's more because the injury he's coming back from. Even the doctor says, oh, he can, he's okay to pitch, you still just never know giving the history of the injury. Yeah, I don't think they will let him back if there's any risk towards next year. I think it would be, he's healthy, he's fine. He now runs the same risk that he would run in March of 2024. Uh, let's get to some of your emails. The RicoB at gmail.com. Mets get set for a four-game series against the St. Louis Cardinals. By the way, that game, the opener, Thursday night or tonight, depending on when you're listening, is a nationally televised game. No Gary, no Keith. Fox which I do not understand you know, how they put Mets Cardinals on a Thursday night on Fox just is beyond me. Uh, Jimmy writes, congratulations on calling the 500 homestand. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I said in an email in April disagreeing with you about Peterson over McGill as the fifth starter. Neither of us got that right. Tyler McGill was okay yesterday or today. I think he has some really good stuff, but at some point you have to put it all together. What bothers me the most about both of them is the season's over and they're still walking the ballpark. Are these six weeks both their last chance? And if so, Peterson seems okay out of the pen. Would you consider converting Miguel to a one-inning reliever or move on? I wouldn't want either guy in the rotation next year. You are going to need depth guys, which they were supposed to be this year and they were very bad at. A part of why the Mets failed this season, we went through this, is that their depth guys were far worse this year than what they were last year. Besides the obvious, replacing Chris Bassett, Max Scherzer not being as good, all that, the depth guy performance was a huge reason why the Mets failed. Will they need them as depth guys next year? I don't know. I got to see what they do during the offseason. I am intrigued by Peterson out of the bullpen. I am. I think in theory, Tyler McGill could be a good uh, good look at the bullpen. When we saw him do it last year, he was very ineffective. But I am at the point where I would view both of those guys as intriguing options out of the bullpen if they can be converted into relievers while simultaneously understanding you need depth guys. You, know, you are going to need a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, sometimes a ninth starting pitcher. Are you confident? in the development of Jose Budo to be a depth guy? Are you confident in one or two of the younger guys to be close enough where they're depth guys? Uh, Eliasar Hernandez, who we barely ever saw this year, can he be a depth guy? Are there other arms they're going to add during the offseason that not just to fill out the rotation, but can qualify as depth guys? Or are we going to be in a spot where both Peterson and Miguel fit that role again? I'm at the point where it, they're just never going to be the answer in a rotation. And because of that, like the old days, you move them to relievers and see if you can get the most out of them. David Ramos Rice, what's up, bitches? Wow. What, a, what an intro. 
Sorry, just really pissed off at anything Mets related right now. <laughs> so because we're the Rico Bees pissed off at us, can you clarify this thing with the sixth overall record? Is it the record or the lottery result? For example, let's say the Mets finished with the sixth worst record, but after the lottery, they get the seventh pick. Because they finished with the sixth worst record, do they still get penalized and have that pick go to 17, or do they stay at seven because it goes by record? Also, doesn't this top six worst record also mean that if you sign a free agent with a qualifying offer, you do not lose the pick if you have one of the six worst records? I think it's, uh, I think it is. Thanks. Great guys. David Ramos, you only have one of those six horse records. What does that mean, that last line? We only have one of the six horse records? Worst records. Oh, oh. <laughs> He's reiterating his question. The horse thing can uh, confuse me a little bit. It is where you pick. So here's a great, here's a, I guess the opposite of this. Right now, the Mets are not in the bottom six. Let's say they finish ninth, ninth worst record, but they win the lottery. They literally jump up and get the number one overall pick. It would stay at number one. So their pick moving down 10 slots is their draft pick. Forget about where they finish record-wise. It's where they're picking in the draft. That's why there's an added layer of confusion to this whole thing. It's not as simple when the season ends in the first week of October. Hey, guys, congratulations. We finished with the fifth worst record. Yay. No, no, no. They can drop. The lottery could cause them to drop. And if they drop from five to seven, they're picking 17th. So it's all about the lottery. And I think one person brought this up last week, and I'm sure we'll get more of it as time rolls on. The idea that Rob Manfred will try to screw us. The idea that he will reverse the lottery against the Mets as a penalization of all the spending Steve Cohen has had. I I can't jump on board with it yet because this is like our first lottery. And what the hell do we know? This ain't the NBA. This isn't David Stern with the frozen envelope. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, I don't buy the conspiracy. I could tell Pete's already buying the conspiracy, though, right? Oh, I'm locked in on that. <laughs> <laughs> He's all over it. Uh, Giuseppe writes, Evan and Hoff, I plan to get the Edwin Diaz bobblehead all season, and I'm going to the game. This was prior to the game on Tuesday. And I was looking at all the promotions for the rest of the year, and I happen to see that tomorrow, as in Wednesday, they're giving away Max Scherzer-inspired sunglasses. I feel like they would have taken that promotion off. Well, they did, in fairness. If you went to the game on Wednesday and you bought tickets to get the Max Scherzer sunglasses, you never got them because they pulled the promotion. I mentioned this on the air with Tiki, if you missed it. The Red Sox had a Kiki Hernandez bobblehead. They traded Kiki Hernandez. What they decided to do was give you the bobblehead with a note. And it was a note from Kiki basically thanking you for his time in Boston. So I don't know how that would have gone with Max, though. They give you the Max sunglasses and they're like, Dear Met fans, I'm so sorry for sucking against the San Diego Padres. <laughs> I apologize for not shutting my mouth. You know, sorry. Hey, hey guys, uh, this is Max Scherzer here and say uh, thank you so much for the support. And this is actually what was on my glove when they checked me and tossed me out of the game. <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, Fred Solomon writes, Diva Search. I'm tired of hearing Max Scherzer run his mouth, whether it's, ex ex whether it's his excuses, his injuries, the sticky stuff, or calling Verlander a diva. Try keeping a lead against the Braves or Yankees first. 
The fact he didn't answer the bell in game six of the 2021 LCS and failed to show up for any big game is a met. Same with Verlander. I don't care what he complained about. I do care that he missed a month and didn't really show up until July. I agree with you about Max. I don't care if he liked Justin Verlander. I don't care anymore about if he thought he was a diva. I, I disagree, though, Fred, with the comment about Verlander. I think that mattered. I think Verlander and Verlander had to go to social media to basically clarify that Puma story that he loved his teammates and that it was constructive criticism about the Mets analytics. That's a good thing. I'll give you, it's not a Nets comparison, Hoff, but I'll give you a Jets comparison. Aaron Rodgers has credibility. If Aaron Rodgers in the offensive room is going to say, hey, I got some advice on how we should handle this, I would want the Jets to listen. Because Aaron Rodgers is coming from an organization of success. Justin Verlander was in Houston where everything they touched turned to gold. If he's telling you, hey, guys, I don't think you use your analytics as well as the Astros do. Should you not listen? The Astros are everything we all want to be. So I, I took, you know, there are certain stories I hear. And I'm not making the decision based on biases or preconceived notions. I'm trying to be fair about it. And I hear it, and I'm like, eh, I don't think that matters. Eh, I think that's overblown. Then there are other things that jump out at you. And I think Justin Verlander being critical of the Mets analytics department is a big deal. And it's something that the Mets should take notice of and should almost say thank you for telling us. Because the New York Mets are not the Houston Astros. And we wish we were. Well, wasn't that something that, like, when Epler first had his go around of, if this team continues to struggle, don't expect me to go and add more to this team. I'm not going to do it. But in that same sentence, he went on and criticized how, again, how far back the rule ponds were with everything. Yeah. How everything was just so behind. And, and again, the analytic part of it is one of those things that's just way behind the eight ball. The hope is, though, we're not as far behind the eight ball as we were three years ago. And finally, Dan had a really interesting observation. I find it funny how in two years, Buck has never pulled a player aside in the dugout, no matter how stupid or brain dead of a play they make. I won't mention any names, Brandon Nemo, but tonight, and he's talking about game one of this series, and this was very noticeable what he's about to bring up. But tonight, he decides to publicly lecture Pete Alonzo on the top step of the dugout about the baseline play where the camera can pick up the whole thing. Between Cohen's lack of commitment to him and all the BS in the media right now, it almost feels like they're going out of their way to make Pete the fall guy for this disaster, and I can't understand why. So what he's referring to on Monday night was they called the base runner who was in a rundown between first and second out of the baseline and as that was happening, Pete made a throw home that was a wild throw. So we thought Mets are about to be down 2 nothing. The umpire signals, no, guy's out of baseline. He's out. Inning's over. Mets catch a break. Gary Cohen explains to all of us, hey, the ump's got this wrong because you can't call a guy for being out of the baseline if there isn't an attempt to tag the runner. And Pete did not make an attempt to tag the runner. So he just got it, looked home to try to get that lead run, makes the bad throw. Guy's out of the baseline, but as Gary said, Pete never made an attempt to tag, which is very interesting. And how many times has this come up? 
And yeah, you do see the next inning Buck talking to people. This is where I disagree with Dan. Lecturing, I, I, they're talking about a complicated baseball play. They're talking about a play that maybe you never have in five years at first base. So I didn't take that. And I, and you would have guessed I'm on edge about Alonzo, right? That I'm looking for any hint that the Mets are looking to F him. I thought that was Buck just talking baseball with his first baseman and explaining, hey, so for the future, if this ever happens again, just so you know, because you may not, make sure you attempt that tag. I didn't see anything wrong with it. I think that Dan and a lot of other Mets fans are on edge, maybe rightfully so, about their fears about Pete Alonzo and their fears about what the Mets are thinking certainly because the rumors have been out there that he was in trade discussion at the trade deadline. I don't think it's about making Pete the fall guy. I think the Mets, and Steve Cohen proved this to us last year, is a businessman. And we discussed this on the last week, and I'm sure we'll do plenty more episodes as time rolls on. I think he's a businessman. I don't think there's this emotional attachment to lifelong Mets. There wasn't for DeGrom. And, and, and I know... It's easy now to say, well, they clearly made the right decision. Obviously, Jake at Tommy Johnny may never pitch again. I acknowledge that. But we said it at the time. There really wasn't any, eh, it's Jake. It's our guy. Let's, let's offer him a little bit more. I don't think the Mets are going to view Pete Alonso or anybody else for that matter as sentimental guys they've got to keep. I think they're going to make business decisions. And if Pete Alonso's people are asking for a contract right now. And that's really what I want to find out. Have they had any discussions? That's a really important question. Have the Mets offered anything to Pete? Has his agent made an offer to the Mets? Is there any discussion? I think that tells us a lot. If there's no discussion at all, I'd be a little worried. I'd say, whoa, that's a little strange. But my guess, and it's just a pure guess, I admit this, is that they're just far off. That Pete Alonso's guys probably want $275 million. And the Mets are like, we don't value that way. And I think that's really what it's about. If you look too much into this, and maybe you shouldn't, maybe you will. When Steve Cohen wrote that letter to Mets season ticket holders recently, admitting what they were doing, he mentioned Alonso prominently as a core member of this team next year. So I'm not convinced they're looking to make him the fall guy and they're looking to trade him. I think this comes down to value. This comes down to how much do they think he's worth and how much does he think he's worth himself. And that's what may lead to all this. But I didn't find that troubling at all, Dan. It's an interesting observation. I'm glad you brought it up and I'm glad you emailed us about it. I thought that was just a natural baseball discussion between Buck Showalter and Pete Alonso. We got four games coming up against the St. Louis Cardinals. That should be fun. And we'll see what happens. Who the hell knows? We're in the dog days of summer, ladies and gentlemen. And these are the bad dog days because we're in no pennant race whatsoever. But we do appreciate you listening. We will be here for Rico after every series. Don't you fear. Email us, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. Pete's going to have a good time at Disney World. Where are you going first? Which theme park do you hit first? Uh, I have no idea. See, I, I allowed my wife and my uh, my 10-year-old to book this whole entire trip. So I'm just... Paying the bill. I'm not actually <laughs> knowing what we're doing. You're just along <laughs> for the ride. How many days uh, will you be at Disney World? All right. So today is today will be Wednesday. If, the, if you count that, we're coming home next Wednesday. So 
Oh, wow. Seven, eight days. Yeah. Look at you. I'm doing Disney World in December, and I'm driving. So I ain't worrying about any freaking flight delays. And I believe it or not, me and my wife were planning it out yesterday. We were already talking about how to meticulously plan this out because we love as adults Epcot Center. We think Epcot is fantastic, but the kids obviously love Magic Kingdom. That's that's the go-to. So I'm thinking two days Magic Kingdom, one day Epcot, one day uh, Animal whatever, and one Animal day Kingdom. the Disney, st- uh, the uh, the studios, whatever the hell that's called. Yeah, uh, was it MGM Studios? Is that what it is? I don't even know. No, I think it's called it Disney Studios now. I think no. that's what it's called. Yeah. I have no idea. I'm just going for <laughs> Listen, I am not a Disney snob. My wife and my kids are. I am just, I literally am just here right now. That's, where, that's what's up. <laughs> well, enjoy yourself and stay away from the Mets. Learn from me. Don't watch the Mets while you're on vacation. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> we appreciate you listening and downloading another edition of Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.